Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Earlier this month, there was a reunion in Hong Kong of relatives of those who had been interned at the civilian camp in Stanley during the Japanese occupation, beginning in December 1941. Diana Fortescue came from England for the reunion and also to launch a book about her parents, Tim and Marjorie Fortescue, who were interned, called The Survivors, a period piece. I'll be talking to her a bit later in the programme. First, I'm joined by programme regular David Bellis of Hong Kong history website Gulo.com to talk about how you can subscribe for free to his site to receive daily accounts of the prisoner of war diaries from that time. They're mostly diaries written at the time and they vary. Each person had their own interest, what they'd be jotting down each day, often very brief. But what we do is we take the diary and we slice it up day by day and then people come to the website and subscribe And each day you'll get an email with the diary entries for that day 74 years ago. So on 8th of December, you'll have an email with all of the 1941 war breaking out and all the, ex the excitement of that. And then if you, if you stay subscribed, you'll actually follow them through the whole three years and eight months. So through the fighting, through the internment. Then it often gets pretty mundane. You can imagine your day after day in the internment camp. But there are different excitements happen during that as well. And you get to really know the character of the people. In the diaries, presumably, you can read a lot about the, sort of the daily tedium of being actually confined. Also, not getting on with the people that you have to live with. And also the stomach, ongoing, permanent feeling of hunger. Yes, hunger, food. Food takes such a big role in the diaries. And you do hear about little petty annoyances. Um, people getting on each other's nerves, as you'd expect. There's less of that in the diaries than I'd have expected. I, I, I would imagine if I was there, you know, I'd be permanently griping about the people in my room because you had 10, 20 people squashed into these places. Um, but no, don't hear so much of that. You get the big events, things like the bombing of the camp, um, executions in 1943, events like this. We've also got other material where we can. We, we supplement it with newspaper clippings, photos, of course, photos very rare from that time but the occasional photos and then at the end the liberation that's the time of great excitement uh, the, the time leading up to it to rumors that war is finished but is, is it really yes it is, is this going to be another disappointment yeah yes there'd been so many rumors in the past and they'd been disappointed so many times uh, and then somebody got given a toilet roll i think there was an issue of toilet rolls and they thought hang on this must be it if they're giving out toilet rolls and then you get them coming back into Hong Kong and going to see the places that they'd lived in before, what were they like, and just getting back into normal life. It's a, it's a fascinating story, I think. The story that also that I, I was interested, uh, that when I'm talking to Ian Gill, one of the people who've come over for the visit, is the story afterwards. And I don't know whether you um, have any, had any from, from some of the families that you're in contact with and these prison diaries. Does it all stop in August 45? Or has anybody shared with you just how they try and continue? You say you go back into a normal life, but how do you do that? Well, we've got one one story which which I find very moving. It's uh, Ari Jones' diary. Ari Jones was a prison officer, and he gets married, I think, about 1939, brings his wife up back to Hong Kong. And she's evacuated in 1940, pregnant, so they've had a very short marriage... His daughter is born in Australia, but he's never seen her in the, in the flesh, so to speak. 1941, 
Um, he's in, in the fighting, takes part in the fighting. He goes into camp. And quite soon he starts a relationship with a lady he just writes as G in the, in the diary. And we've worked out later that she'd have probably been a similar age to his wife and had a daughter quite a similar age to his daughter. So not surprising at all that you'd, you'd look for some comfort there. And she's repatriated with the Canadians in 43, so that ends. So it's a great, great disappointment for him. In about 1945, he starts another relationship. It's another lady with the initial G. And on the ship back to Britain, he's writing on the one hand, G, why did I ever leave you? And on the other hand, he's got just received a telegram from my wife. She's waiting to meet me in Liverpool. And so his diary finishes with a ship going into Liverpool Harbour. And that's the end. And you think, oh my goodness, what happened next? And we had no idea until about two years after we posted the diary, there was a comment on the website, I am Ray. I was his oldest, I'm his oldest daughter. Here's my email address, please get in touch. So we, we got in touch. Uh, I was, by complete chance, going to Britain about three weeks later and was able to take the original diary, which was in Stanley, to her and hand it over. She explained that when her father came back and met her mother, he gave the mother the diary to read. And you can imagine, uh, was very, very upset and said, destroy it, I never want to see it again. And the family story is that that was one of her greatest regrets, that afterwards she said that was a historical document. It should never have been destroyed. And somehow it wasn't. And so it turned up in Alison McEwen's father's papers when he passed away and they were going through that. She found it. And Alison McEwen is? Alison McEwen, daughter of Colin McEwen, who was part of the great escape um, with Admiral Chanchak. So how it got there, they've got no idea. But she went through all the effort of typing it up and uh, very kindly let us post it up onto the website and then after that two year gap we, we finally got in touch with the daughter and we, we hear that she says that everyone described her father as a, as a complete fun, cheerful man before the war but she never had that experience of him that he was a very bitter and, and those war years just changed him completely but she only knew him as a, as a very bitter man, very unhappy. The war years had changed him completely. And she never had a chance to talk to him about this because he passed away when she was a teenager. And so for her, being able to read the diary was, was a, you know, very moving and a wonderful... Well, she, she treats it like a, a gift from her, her father now to at least give some explanation of, of why he was like he was. On the 19th of December 1941, we're hearing about events behind Quarry Bay. Quarry Bay had been set up as a refugee centre, so there were stocks of food, there were stocks of firewood, and these great communal stove areas had been set up, and you can still see them today if you go for a walk up along the tracks there. The man in the charge of this was Charles Mycock, and he's, he was up at Woodside, the house on the, the road as you walk up from Quarry Bay. He writes, at 9.30am, a party of Japanese soldiers halted outside Woodside. I led 19 members of my staff in a body onto the lawn. After the house was searched, we were told to carry rice and other material in company with 30 or 40 Chinese, many with halters around their necks and hands tied to ropes who had also been commandeered. I protested, but after being beaten on the head with a revolver was forced to submit. The women's staff were permitted to re-enter the house. Choi and I, with a bag of rice between us, were in the van just behind the officer in command, and near the junction with Cecil's ride lay the body of William Seath, ARP, shot through the head. On the opposite side of the road were the bodies of two women, one a European with a cloth over the face and an armour.
David Bellis there of Gulo.com. Do subscribe to his website to see the Hong Kong Prisoner of War Diaries. David will join me again next week to share more excerpts with me of prisoner experiences throughout the war. Tim and Marjorie Fortescue were a young, privileged couple who came to Hong Kong in the late 1930s. Tim Fortescue worked in Government House and they lived on the peak. With their baby son Adrian, they would leave that life of luxury to enter Stanley Internment Camp for civilians. Their daughter Diana has written a book about their experiences called The Survivors, a period piece. One of the reasons, the, the main reason that they finished up in Stanley internment camp, which was a civilian camp, rather than my father finishing up in one of the military camps, was that he was taken out of the of army service um, to be part of the small core team that surrounded the uh, the governor and worked in the bunker, kept the government work going. Um, throughout the fighting, and then when Hong Kong actually fell, my mother had been working in a hospital, the uh, Memorial Hospital. She'd left her baby son um, in a creche at the Matilda Hospital, and she would go and visit him when she was off duty. And so my father, once it was quite clear that it was all over, immediately went up to join my mother up in the hospital. And, and they, there they stayed for the month leading up to their internment in, in Stanley. Now, when they arrived in Stanley, had they, were they ones who'd had the opportunity they'd known in advance, so they therefore had things to take in with them? They knew in advance that that's where they were likely to finish up. My mother did actually go back to their apartment, which had been totally looted, but she picked up an extraordinary collection of things, including a potty, a pram, and a fox fur um, collar, which actually proved to be a rather useful thing to have because I think in the end she was managed to get some money for it in camp um, to buy some milk for her baby. But they, they didn't have very much in the way of um, possessions when, by the time they got into camp. And also by the time they got into camp, most people had already arrived, so there was very little accommodation left. And they moved in temporarily into a house, um, into one room in one house, um, and I think there were 13 of them originally in this one room, um, most of whom had never met before. Um, and that's, they stayed in that one room for um, a year. Um, for, I think four, a family of four moved out after a few months. Um, but there were basically there were nine people living in one room um, for a whole year. And, of course, my parents were there with a small, unhouse-trained baby. And uh, I do quote from that, a very interesting diary, which I was given access to, um, where my parents were described in not entirely um, complimentary fashion as being completely hopeless parents with this baby. And, you know, what do you do with a baby? Do you love and cry, which is what you should do with a baby? But on the other hand, if there are nine other people living with you, it was just, it was horrendous living with them and their baby in this in very, very close quarters, but there was no choice. Eventually, they moved into their own room, which was, had been formerly a kitchen in somebody's one of the apartments in uh, in Stanley. So they had their own room. But when they had all their beds out together, my, my parents' bed and the baby's bed, there, no one could, you couldn't put your foot on the ground. There was simply no room, but at least it was theirs and it was private. It must have been extremely difficult to go from, as you said, what had been quite a privileged upbringing um, and, and then have to adapt to this. That what would have been on their side was that they were very young yeah. to a certain extent. How do you feel? I mean, obviously, you've um, now 
written their story um, but as a daughter looking back at what they, the deprivations that they had to go through does that affect you emotionally? Um, I'm not sure if it affects me emotionally I, as I say in the book um, I'd always known that they had been in Stanley but I'd never asked them about it and I think deep down I'd never asked them about it because I assumed it because they never talked about it or very, my father never my mother rarely it was because it was a, a subject that was too painful to discuss, so I never, I never talked to them about it. And it was only when I came to live in Hong Kong, and I suddenly started seeing places like Sheko and San Ling that she used to talk about, about the good days in Hong Kong, that I suddenly started asking her about it, and she told me a lot. I mean, I do quote directly from her what she's told me and what she's told other people who've interviewed her. Um, but my father, unfortunately, that, by that stage had Alzheimer's, so I couldn't talk to him. So the voices that come through very much in my in my book are my mother's rather than my father's. But by a miracle, um, when I was researching the book, completely out of the blue, about four years ago, I received a letter from somebody I didn't even know existed, who was a cousin, a distant cousin of my father's, whose father had the original letter that he my father had written to his father on being released from Stanley and I've not only quoted from the book the letter but I've actually reproduced the whole letter because it is finally my father's voice and it's just the most wonderful letter of a by then 29 year old um, who's just been through these nearly four years of deprivation um, and he says wonderful things about my mother and about my brother. And it's a very, very moving letter. And it's it's almost the most important thing in, in the whole book um, because it was finally my father's voice. Now, in the, in terms of you, you had one brother, um, he was a young baby as they went in to Stanley. And then how many more children did they have? They had my I and my younger brother were born in Washington, D.C. after the war. Um, my father went from Hong Kong eventually to, uh, to work for the United Nations um, for an, an organi- the Food and Agriculture Organization, which was just being set up then. And he was part of the team that helped set up the FAO. Um, and so just me and my younger brother were born there. And that, so we were three kids. So your older brother, by the time he left Stanley, how old would he have been? He was nearly four. He was born in June um, 1941. And they were released in August. So he's too young to to have had memories. He didn't have memories. No, no. sadly he died uh, ten years ago. So uh, that's uh, Adrian. Adrian, yes, and that's the little boy on the on the front cover. When you um, were researching, so you've got you've got quite a number of photos, obviously not taken in Stanley, as you as you say, that's not people weren't wandering around with cameras. But um, how how have you built up your? You say you had long chats with your mum, or. I, when I was living in Hong Kong, I'd go back every other month to just, just visit. Well, I had a, a, a publishing business at that stage in London, um, but also I wanted to go back and see my parents, who were very elderly at that stage. And both my sons were, at the beginning, were in, in, in Europe, and so I'd go and see them. So I would chat to, to Mummy for a long, long time, but I, I didn't want to record her, and I didn't want anything that would inhibit her, so I'd scribble things down, and she said them. But... Um, there was um, a PhD student, Bernice Archer, who was writing a book about women and children in Japanese prisoners of war camp. She very, very kindly let, sent me both letters that Mummy had written to her, and she had done an, an interview like this on, a, on a, she'd recorded her, 
Um, so I've, I had that transcript, um, I had that recording turned into a transcript. So I had every word that she'd ever said to, to Bernice, which has been invaluable. And obviously I had permission from Bernice to, to reproduce it. And that is fantastic because she would have been much less inhibited with Bernice than she would have been with her own daughter talking about these things. And Bernice asked her highly intelligent, pertinent questions. And, and a lot of it is, is quoted in the book. Now, in terms of uh, what, her, how she portrays her time there, obviously there was the struggle with having a newborn virtually... Having had an armour for the first six months of his life as well, having been thoroughly spoiled in this Hong Kong-style nanny. And I don't suppose she changed a nappy very often or <laughs> did all the thing, disgusting things that had to be done in very, very limited circumstances that they found themselves in Stanley and washing nappies. And awful. Yes. Very hard. Very, very hard, yes. And, and the worry of it. The worry, I think, the worry that whether the baby was going to survive, in some ways, almost worse was whether they were going to survive, because who would look after the baby if they didn't survive? And the very worst thing was just not knowing when it was going to end and how it was going to end, because the history has, you know, had not rep reported kindly on how Japanese behave when they are against the wall. And they all always imagined that they would be bayoneted before before they were liberated. If they didn't die of starvation, which I gather from experts, had had the war gone on one more winter, many, many of them would have died because there just wasn't enough food. And the previous winter had been very cold and a lot of people had suffered as a result of the cold and the lack of food because, of course, they were so diminished. Their, their strength was, was nil. And one more cold winter with very little food would have probably done a lot of them in but they survived now tell me a couple of accounts from your mother of that time i think we'll start with a, a, a very upbeat one they one of the things she says was that she found they found themselves doing the sorts of things that they would never dreamt of doing normally my father as it happens had been a very active member of the footlights at cambridge university and was was a great thespian and loved acting, and he wrote skits, and, and he loved that. My mother wouldn't have dreamt of doing any of those things when she was an undergraduate. She was much more correct. But she said she found there was a, there was a wonderful ballet, I think it was called Esther, I, I refer to it in the book, um, where she and a whole lot of her friends in Stanley found themselves dressing up as a, sort of the chorus um, and dancing in front of an audience. And she said that we were like a herd of elephants, but it was great fun and it just did them, their morale so much good to do something like that. Um, I think as on the negative side, and I think both my parents would, would say this, they, they spoke very, very rarely did they speak negatively about the Japanese. They didn't have that much interface with the Japanese, my father more so because he was part of the government team. But it was their fellow Westerners, their fellow Brits, who were the ones who were the most disappointing. And the behavior of some of the people in that camp was just lamentable. One of the things that she never, ever forgot was that there was a couple, a very prosperous couple, who uh, were in the camp, who wanted to buy from her, I think they were some garnet necklace and earrings or something. And the negotiation with, as she put it, and she's a bit of a snob, you know, people of your own kind, it, you know, she would rather sell things, what she called across the wire, illegally, um, 
and not have anything to do with whoever was buying it, but actually negotiating this sort of arrangement with people of your own kind. She never, ever forgot that. But she was interesting too because she said that the women with, the women generally, and particularly those with children, were made to feel very guilty by, by a lot of the men, a lot of whom had had to send their wives away from Hong Kong a, a year and a half before the Japanese invasion. Um, and um, so they were already resentful that some of the wives had got out of the evacuation, as my mother did. Um, she trained as a nurse, and that's how she got out of the evacuation. And then to finish up in, in the camp with these women and children, who, especially the children, were given priority when it came to feeding them, and the, feeding the more nutritious, good quality food, such as it was. Um, and she said that the, a lot of the men just made the women feel very, very guilty and felt that they shouldn't be there. But her view was that it was it was a more humane experience as a result of the women and children being there. Of course, there, there were a lot of nurses there and they were absolutely wonderful. And a couple of women doctors and there were physiotherapists. And, um, so her view was that it was a much, much happier experience for those civilian men because there were women and children around, and the Japanese were, were probably more kindly towards them than, than had there not been women around. I'm talking to Diana Fortescue, who's here in Hong Kong. Her son also lives here, but she's here also for a reunion of some of the families of those who were interned in Stanley internment camp. She's written a book based on her parents' experience called The Survivors, A Period Peace. And uh, Diana is the daughter of... Tim and Marjorie Fortescue um, who actually went into Stanley when they were very young and just a, a married couple with a young baby and they were in their 20s. I've asked Diana to have a look at a couple of excerpts from what her mother told. I've never forgiven myself for not going to Australia, either pregnant or as a mother. All women except nurses without, with or without kids were supposed to go. Lots didn't go. I did make arrangements for a Belgian friend to take my baby there when he was weaned, but it was too late. So my babe was starved for three years and eight months due to the folly of his two young parents. Of the 3,000 internees, at least 200 were kids of various ages. Naturally, we naughty mums were unpopular, and with good reason, as male internees felt that they would have been more food and less anxiety if there were no women or children. But I think that the kids, were, in a way, served as a protection from our guards, and their behaviour tended to keep us less selfish and peculiar. Small kids, though a great anxiety, helped to provide a normal, sane atmosphere and protected us, I think, from the worst Japanese excesses. I'm not justifying myself. I know I should have gone, and my husband should have insisted that I went once I was pregnant. So, I mean, a constant anxiety for your mother was uh, to ensure that her young son Adrian had the necessary nutrition, which of course he couldn't have under those circumstances. And in fact, supplies uh, would dwindle. Uh, towards the end, there were some Red Cross parcels, but generally there were some incredibly lean times. Um, so here is an excerpt that Diane is about to read about how um, her mother would always be on trying to find a way to um, sell something in order to get milk for her son. Food was our main obsession. Rice, watery vegetable, occasional peanuts and soybeans, and revolting but nutritious shark's liver oil, bought by th pr clever Professor Herklotz into camp and kept for the very sick. 
I had a child to look after, and everything took much longer. We would give him our rations, but in the end we got some kind of canteen going. I sold the silver fox fur for four tins of milk at one stage, and I paid £150, proceeds of the black market sale of my engagement ring, for £10 of milk powder for my little boy. I was lucky the Japs didn't cut off my finger, but I was in nursing uniform. Black market economics would fill a book, so that was the interesting economics of prison life. It's like, you know, getting gold out of your teeth or selling a piano for a loaf of bread, the economics of starvation. How would you say that their experience had an impact on them? Um, I think it taught my mother about priorities in life. Having had a very, she'd had a very good upbringing, she'd had a very, you know, a correct upbringing. But it, she had been quite spoiled. I mean, she had her ponies and, you know, when she, her mother had given her a puppy when she'd been to the dentist and been very brave. It was that sort of indulgence that she'd had. And, of course, suddenly to find yourself with no indulgence at all, she had a great sense of what the priorities in life were. And although my father went on to do, you know, to become a member of parliament and all the rest of it, she never had her head turned by important people uh, after this experience she I, th I think she had a very very healthy attitude to to the priorities and the importance of what, what is important and what is not my father's experience was I'm still trying to work it out and this, writing this book has helped a lot I think the main result of, of his experience was that he came back from the war to the UK and a lot of his friends had, had fought almost everybody had fought a lot of his friends had got DSOs or medals for being very brave. And he came back and they'd all had, quotes, a good war. They'd all done something really worthwhile. And I think he always had a complex about having sat in a in civilian internment camp with women and children and old men doing nothing. And I think it really bugged him. Um, and he immediately, he never wanted, he didn't want to return to the UK for a long time. He found relations with his men, men friends. He'd been really one of the lads at Cambridge, um, a great actor and all that, very popular. He didn't want to be part of that world anymore. He, and he moved on by living overseas for many, many years afterwards and trying to re-establish a reputation, at least to himself, which was nothing to do with the war and nothing to do with his men friends who had fought in the war. And I, I, I didn't realise that until I started writing the book. He, he, um, he was a complicated person as a result. But I think I th it had a very different effect on both of them. My mother never threw anything away, ever, 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 even though she moved house. I think she told me she moved house 36 times in her whole married life. Um, she never, ever threw a rubber band or a um, piece of paper. Shopping lists were always on the back of an envelope. And uh, she, having never been deprived as a child, she, having known the deprivations of Stanley, she never threw anything away. Food, she was never, ever a good cook. She would throw everything into a pot, whatever was left over, probably been sitting in the fridge for three weeks, and that would be produced as a garbage soup, she'd call it. Um, she just couldn't bear to throw anything away as a result of um, the deprivations that they'd been through. Um, but she was, she was a much, much loved woman, and, and I think she could have been such a spoilt young woman, but, and she probably was. 
until she'd been through all this. But my my father speaks so movingly about her, and the tragedy is that they divorced later. But he, in his letter to his father at the end of the, when they were released, he just talks about my mother. It brings tears. To, the first time I read it, it brought tears to my eyes, knowing that they had divorced. Um, just saying what a wonderful, wonderful fight she had put up and how he owed his health and Adrian owes his health entirely to my mother. Diana Fortescue talking there about her parents, Tim and Marjorie Fortescue and their experiences in Stanley internment camp. Her book, The Survivors, a period piece, is available at St John's Cathedral Bookshop. Next week, I continue my look at the experiences of the internees through the eyes of Ian Gill, whose mother was interned, and also through some of the diary accounts via David Bellis. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. And you've been listening.